Greetings in Jesus' name. I enjoyed the time this evening spent worshiping. Elijah, I believe, is the man that the that the whole rabbi system is built on or pattern after. The Jews, as they have their rabbi and, and disciples, Elijah is the man whose walk with God they try to emulate. And uh, I just think of Elijah. Jesus, as he taught his disciples, as they followed him, one time he asked him, who do men say that I am? And one of the persons that they thought that Jesus was, was Elijah, possibly. When was the last time you were mistaken for Elijah because of your walk with God? Elijah was not a man who sat around and did a, sat back in the corner and didn't have a whole lot to say. Elijah was a fiery man of God, I think. He's a favorite, one of my favorite Bible characters as well. I'd like to invite your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's begin the study of non-resistance. As you think of non-resistance, we often think of not going to war. And of course that is included. But as I, as I studied, for, studied the, the subject of non-resistance, at first I thought, I wouldn't have enough material. I, I taught this, the subject of non-resistance at area-wide Bible school in the spring of 17, I believe it was. And I thought there wasn't going to be enough material for, for uh, seven sessions of, on non-resistance. And uh, I discovered that it ain't hard to get around to touching on not going to war. Non-resistance is a lot more than not going to war. Non-resistance is who we are. Non-resistance, it's, it's who we are, not what we do. Well, of course, it affects what we do. Obviously, it does. But we must be non-resistant, not just do those acts. And I, I want to try to explain that. I'd like to start with reading here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting verse 17, and reading to the end of the chapter. And... In our Bible school at home, generally, it's a discussion. And so that's kind of what I thought this was going to be, but I discovered it's, it's more of a teaching. So if you have questions, I would be delighted if you would stop me and ask a question and we can discuss it. And if there are hard questions, maybe we, Brother Daniel would probably know the answer. But um, So if, if you do have questions, I, I, I love discussion. And uh, so I wanted to... If, if I'm not coming across clear, or if I'm saying something that's not wrong, I want, I want you to, to let me know. Verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolish, foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. 
the foolishness of preaching. You know, so you sit there all day and you, you study, and the next day you, you preach for an hour, and, and then you read this verse, the foolishness of preaching. But God uses that in a way that humanly, we, it, it doesn't really make sense. For the Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom. And as, as we look at the study of non-resistance, we'll be looking at it more from the Greek point of view or the West, with the Western mind. The Jews looked at it, look at God and, and religion differently than we do. For we, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. You can't, you can't explain the cross to someone that is not under the power of Jesus Christ. It doesn't make sense. Have you ever tried to explain a color to a blind person? Or explain how a beautiful song sounds to a deaf person? Well, you can't explain the the beauty and the depth of the cross to someone that is not born again. Doesn't make sense. How can you not really live until you die? Verse 24, But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. As we look at the study of non-resistance, we're going to see the cross different times as we go through. As I think of, as I was, as I was studying, as we preparing i'm not the how would you say some people have have nice steps and and well laid out and it's i don't have it that way it's more like when you look at a rope you see us you see the same strands over and over and as 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 we look at the study at non-resistance and how it's played out in our lives we're going to see some of the same things but we might look at it from a little different point of view the study or yes the study and practice of suffering of sacrificial love is not a popular subject it because it means death to my rights death my rights my my wants my wishes those those are dead those are those are behind me it's not today so often we want to be how would you say it individuals serving god not communities serving god and if and you can't be a community of, of people that are blending together if you're not non-resistant. At least, you can't live it out to its, to its fullest. The cross stands ever-present in the, in the life of a non-resistant Christian. It's always there. It's death to sin and self. And I'll, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. 
The study and the practice of non-resistance has very little benefit for the unsaved person because you must have the power of Jesus Christ to, to fully live out non-resistance. Otherwise, we can't do it. Someone has said the Christian life is not hard, it's impossible. And that's exactly where we find ourselves as we live out the teaching of Jesus Christ. It's not hard, it's impossible. We can't do it. And that's where God wants us. As you think of Jesus Christ, as he was standing before Pilate, and as he stood before the Sanhedrin, and as those people did terrible things to him, have you ever considered that even though he knew every sin that those per, that that each one of those people had done, he never once opened his mouth and rebuked them for it. Contr- the control of our tongue, or the lack thereof, is one of the how we say one of the measures of how we know if how non-resistant we are. Controlling our tongue. If we can't control our tongue. That tells us we're not very good at overcoming evil with good, as Jesus taught. Most of much of Christianity today has given up on the on the on the real practice of non-resistance. Now there is there is pacifism, and at at its core, pacifism is. How would you say? The Quakers taught pacifism, but pacifism today is not true non-resistance. And I'd like to look at that later sometime. Webster's defines non-resistance as a principles or practice of passive submission to authority, even when unjust or oppressive. Then it says, at its core is discouragement of even opposition to physical resistance to an enemy. The principles or practice of passive submission to authority, even when unjust or oppressive. And I don't quite agree with Webster's definition of non-resistance because it is not passive at its heart, I don't think. It is you overcome evil with good. Now, it is not retaliating. Not It's not returning evil for evil. In that sense, I guess you could say it is passive, but at its at its Tell me, what takes more strength, to keep your mouth shut or to retaliate? It is not passive. It is uh, John D. Martin, he calls it the ideal resistance to evil. I like that. Turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, we'll start in verse 10. Herod had imprisoned John the Baptist. And verse 10, he sent and beheaded John in in the prison. And his head was brought into charge and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. 
And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. John the Baptist had just been beheaded, and he was frying off with Jesus, you could say, but I think there was a lot deeper bond between John the Baptist and Jesus than what we often think of. I'm not sure if Jesus studied under John the Baptist or not, because it appears as if Jesus got some of his, his authority as a rabbi from John the Baptist, because of what Jesus said one time, and generally you got it from the rabbi you studied under. And so I'd, I'm not sure about that, but there was a deep bond between Jesus and John the Baptist. And I'm sure Jesus' heart was just, how would you say, just torn because John had been beheaded. So he goes out and he's by himself. He tried to go by himself. And the people heard and they went out to Jesus. And look what Jesus does. He saw a great multitude, was moved with compassion toward them. When you have compassion for someone, you can't help but reach out and do something for them. It, it makes you do something for others. That's what I... As I understand compassion, it makes you do something for others. And so that is, as Christians, we call ourselves disciples, and, and, uh, and the passion of a disciple is to be just like the rabbi. It's not necessarily, yes, you want to know what the rabbi knows, but you're trying to be exactly like him in his walk with God. That is the passion of a disciple, and we call ourselves disciples. We call ourselves Christians. So our passion... Our whole life should be spent trying to be just like Jesus in his walk with God. So Jesus is our example of non-resistance. How about Christianity today? Are we like Jesus? I'd like to... Read a story. And as, as you think of what Jesus did and what happened in 1945, the year was 1945. World War II was taking a terrible toll on the lives of men around the globe. It was August 9th. Three days before this, the first atomic bomb had been dropped. And now this B-29 took off from Tinian Island and headed for Japan. And the flight crew had been blessed by a Lutheran and Catholic chaplain before they left. And there were Christians flying the plane. The primary target was shrouded in clouds, so they headed for their secondary target city, Nagasaki. A little bit of history about the city of Nagasaki. In 1549, there was a Jes Jesuit missionary, Francis Javier, established a mission church in that community. The Catholic community there grew and prospered over the next several generations. There were a lot of Christians in Japan in the late 1500s and early 1600s. In the early 1600s, the Japanese government expelled all Europeans and foreign religions from their country. From the year 1600 to 1850, it was a capital crime to be a Christian in Japan. So if you were a Christian, you could be killed. In fact, they treated them horribly. They even crucified Christians in Japan. They tried their best to eradicate Christianity. Well, they thought they, they, they thought they did it. They thought they got rid of all of them. But in the mid-1800s, America forced Japan into opening up and trade again, and, and they discovered that there had been Christians basically live their lives underground in Japan. 
There were hundreds of them. There were still Christians there. And so when the government was still of the same party that had earlier tried to eradicate Christianity, they tried again to get rid of all Christians. But international pressure forced them to stop persecuting Christians in about 1917. After 1917, the, the Christians in Japan built a huge cathedral, St. Mary's Cathedral, I think it was called. And it could, there, was a, there was a community in Nagasaki, there was a community of about 12,000 Christians. On the morning of August 9th, 1945, morning mass was being held in the cathedral. Unknown to the residents of Nagasaki, death was headed their way. There were only two landmarks in the city that could be positively identified from 31,000 feet in the air. And one of them was the top of St. Mary's Cathedral. It was a cloudy day, but as, as the plane had gone to its primary target, it was too, too, too cloudy there, so they flew to Nagasaki. And I'm told that they used the top of the cathedral as their aiming point. They dropped the bomb. 6,000 Christians were killed instantly. At 11.02 a.m., 2,500 more eventually died, Christians, because of, as a result of the, of the bomb. Tens of thousands of other innocent non-combatants were killed as, as well. While the Japanese imperial government could not do in 250 years, American Christians did in nine seconds. They eradicated Christianity from Japan almost entirely. Even today, yet I'm told, there is very little Christianity in Japan. I'm, I read that average church attendance is around 30 people in a congregation. How, I don't know how it is right now, today, but that was when this article was written. How could Christians have fallen so far from what Jesus was like? Now, in fairness to those two chaplains, remember those two chaplains, a Catholic and a Lutheran chaplain that had blessed the flight crew before they left. Those two men totally reversed their, their belief and taught that Christians should not fight or kill. So what has happened to the church? I just wanted to, to, to lay out for, for us what mainstream Christianity accepts as okay. How can you love your enemies? We'll look at that verse. But how can you call that loving your enemy? It bothers me to hear some of the things that people say today. And I don't know, you've probably heard the same thing. You know, I've, I've heard people say, well, they better never come and try to take my guns away. You ever hear someone say that? And, and it's yeah, fairly plain people that say that. And I'm thinking, what are you going to do? Shoot somebody? What are you going to do? You see, non-resistance is a lot more than not going to war. It is who we are. And I'm convinced you can't separate non-resistance and non-conformity. I'm pretty convinced of that. And there won't, you won't be very popular. I can, I can assure you of that. If, if, if we take a stand on the word of God, 
we will not be very popular even among mainstream Christianity. Because to a lot of Christians, God and country are, are very closely linked. It's, it's your duty as a Christian to take up weapons and fight, they say. I don't believe that. Matthew chapter 16, just turn back a few chapters if you're still there. Verse 24, 25 and 26. Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? To the disciples, the idea of carrying a cross, I'm sure, had a lot more of an impact than it would on us. Because I'm, they saw crucifixions. Crucifixions were done... Good, I say good. A skilled crucifixion detail could make a person linger on the cross for days, dying a horrible death. They would they would crucify people right along the road. They would put the cross right beside the road, right where people were walking by, and the eye level of the person on the cross is about five feet high. And so there you walk right by them, and you can look at, look at them right in the eye. You could see their pain and suffering. And it was, it was Rome's way of saying, we're in charge. And Jesus is saying, you're going to need to take up your cross and follow me. The cross is death to self. Dying to self. And it's a, it's a process of dying, I believe. It's not something we do once and then we're, we're good now for life. At least I haven't found it that way. The, the flesh wants to come back to life, Right? Or don't you deal with it daily? You, you, you crucify it once, you say, you say, no, I won't do this, and tomorrow you don't struggle with it again, right? No, it's generally there again tomorrow. Someone has said, I think it was Howard Hendrick, who said there is no, God has no self-improvement plan or no, no improvement pl uh, plan for the flesh or something like that. The flesh is always with us, always, every day. Non-resistance has been called the theology of martyrdom. Acts 1a, Jesus said that you shall be my witnesses. And the word witnesses means um, martyrs. It can, it, can mean you can, it can mean a person that is uh, who dies rather than renounce religion. Or it can be someone that takes a stand at great cost. So you, you can be a martyr. and you don't, It's not necessarily that you have to die physically. But it's someone that denies at great, uh, makes a great sacrifice. For sake of principle. Many people have walked the path of Christianity and have given their lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. Not all. We don't know our fate, do we? We don't know what God has in store for us. If and I would I would expect that most of us, if faced with the decision right now to deny Jesus Christ or die, we would we would choose dying, right? I would think that a, a if someone would force you to choose right now, I, I would think most of us would probably choose Jesus Christ. But, you know, Satan is a lot more subtle than that. He gives us, you know, what about 10 years down the road? Where, where will we be? 
if we start denying principles of of the Bible, I think we're going to end up in a place where we don't want to be. Are we willing to sacrifice what Jesus wants in exchange for what we want? Are you willing to be a witness? You're going to dress differently. You will have different values from the from the community and from society. You will think differently. You will listen to different music. You will dress differently. You have to be different to make a difference. You can't be the same as everyone around you and make a difference. It doesn't work. Are we willing, for the sake of Jesus, who left heaven, who came, was born uh, as a baby, humble birth, who died a terrible death, who rose... Are we willing for his sake to be different, to live a life separation? As I understand this teaching of non-resistance, one of the, the biggest reasons that people don't, how would you say, that the outworking of Jesus' teaching has been neglected is because people have gotten away from the simplicity of gospel. You can read the Gospels, it's generally very simple, but we make it so complicated. People explain away big portions of the New Testament. They say, we don't need that. That was for that culture. It's not for today. I was talking with a young man some time ago, and uh, he was part of a, he was enrolled with a group that trains young people to go out into all kinds of countries to take as missionaries to take the word of God out into these countries, and uh, we were we were discussing it, and I, I asked, "Well, what what's what are their goals?" Well, it's a it's a radical outworking, or it's a radical approach to to Christianity, a radical obedience to the Bible. And I said, "Well," <laughs> I said, "Well, what about this?" I think I went straight to First Corinthians eleven. And, uh, oh, he said, I knew you would bring that up. Well, he, he said it's, it's obedience to the main parts of the Bible. Really? You call that radical obedience? How about this for a radical obedience? How about we read the Bible and obey it? How radical would that be? And, you know, that's what, that's what it means. To, and we are, you, uh, we are looked at by society and by a lot of Christianity as radical. Did you, did you know that? You know what the word radical means? One expressing strict adherence to a worldview that is at extreme odds with a cultural norm. And we are radical. Because the Bible is at extreme odds with cultural norm. So if we obey the teachings of Christ, most people are going to be looking at us as radical. Are you willing to be that person? For the sake of Jesus Christ? To be like Jesus? You think Jesus wasn't radical? Why in the world do you think they thought he was Elijah or John the Baptist come back to life? I mean, these men, John the Baptist was a man of fire and judgment. They thought, well, maybe Jesus, John the Baptist, come back to life. Again, when was the last time you were mistaken for John the Baptist or Elijah? I mean, it never happened to me. And I, I think of something that I think was a 
I can't remember exactly who said it. But he's talking about Paul. You think about it, but almost everywhere Paul went, there were riots and uproars. And everywhere I go, they serve me coffee. What's, what's the difference? How much like Jesus are we? In fact, someone has said something like this. If we would preach like Jesus did, no. If Jesus would have taught the same things we teach today, they would have never crucified him. Ever thought of that? Jesus was radically different. Now, if you look at what Jesus taught, it's, it's straight out of his words, straight out of the Old Testament, but it was the way that God wanted them to understand it, I believe. Very, he had very little new teaching. Here was one of the new things in Matthew 5, 44. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. How hard is that to understand? Love your enemies. Uh, pretty simple, right? Love your enemies. Simple to understand. But it's hard to carry out. People say, well, I mean, a good theologian can make this verse not say what it, or not mean what it says. Um, that means your personal enemies. It doesn't mean your national enemies. Or eh, that was, this is for another time. It doesn't really mean that. I mean, if you if you tell your child to go and clean their room and next week you discover that they had a, a little Bible study and they looked at what those words really meant and discovered that it doesn't really mean what you said, you're not going to be very happy, right? I think Jesus expects us to believe and to practice what he said. We call ourselves Christians. He warned us in, in Matthew 7 that false prophets are going to come. If some have come and gone, some are still here. And I think they will until the end of time as we know it. There will be false prophets. But I'd like for you to, to listen to what Jesus said in uh, the end of his Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what he says. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine... And doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. What was the difference between these two? One man obeyed, and one man did not obey. One man did what Jesus says, and another man did not. I know there's some builders here. Do you like to build on solid rock, or do you like to build on sandy soil? Which drains better? I'm not a builder. I heard someone say that sandy soil drains better, and I, I don't... I'm, I know it drains better than rock, but Jesus said it's better to build the house on the rock than on the sand. Well, you see, it's not necessarily so bad building on the sand. It's where the sand was that they were building on. The sand that they were building on was it was down at the bottom of a canyon where the, where the storm waters would rush through. And everyone knew that when, when, you, when you talked about the sand, generally they were talking about the sand that was down in those canyons out in the desert. It never rained there. 
almost never, could have been hundreds or even a thousand years since the last rain, but it would rain up north, I believe it was, in, in the mountains, the water would run off and, and run down through these canyons. And if you were down in that canyon when the water came through, you were, you were done. It, it would sweep you away. Huge walls of water would, would rush through those canyons, but when they went around turns, they would, they would leave behind a deposit of very fine sand. And it would have been a really nice place to level off and build your house. But Jesus said it was a foolish man that did that. And, and, and they thought, and I'm sure they were laughing like nobody builds their house at the bottom of a canyon where water comes rushing through. You see, it was where the sand was that was the wrong place to build. Someone has likened to likened building on this sand to, let's say you would tell someone that you built your house and you can see Lake Michigan from all, win- all the windows. Well, that means that you built your house on the ice of Lake Michigan. Is that a good place to build a house? No. Listening to the words of Jesus Christ and not obeying him is not a good place to be. You will and I will be destroyed by the storms that come along. It says, great was the fall of it. Another reason why non-resistance isn't practice is because it may not be, and this might, at first glance, this might sound a little strange, but the reason we don't practice non-resistance sometimes is because it is not a privately held belief. We might be part of a group that says they practice non-resistance. Understand? It's not something that I personally believe, but because I am part of a group that believes it, I say I'm non-resistant. But then it's when the tests come along is when we find out if we really are not. You won't always have an opportunity to ask your pastor or your parents or a mentor what you should do in a situation. You get Sunday school papers here? I'm sure you do. The companions? Uh, Did you read that story a few weeks ago about the young man that was... uh, he was in a hurry, I think, on his way to work, and he rear-ended somebody, right? Was non-resistance a privately held belief? Well, praise God, he did work through that. But you see, that's non-resistance, is being willing to pay 3000 what should only cost 1000 And you know, he ended up not having to pay that. These beliefs must be personal. I'd like for you to turn to Daniel chapter 3. So where Nebuchadnezzar had set up that big idol and he was trying to Make everyone bow down to it. You hear the music and you bow down, right? Well, just like today, there are people that like to tattle on people that do right, right? A couple people, some of the some people came to the king and said, There's three men that did not bow down. And Nebuchadnezzar was furious. It was, I think, he thought it was a personal insult. They did it to personally impugn him. So he said, bring them to me. 
and he, and he, he talked to them. And he gave them another chance. What did they do? Could they not have said in their hearts, I'll just bow down. I'm bowing down outside, but in my heart I'm bowing to God. Could they not have done that? How about bring it a little closer to to me? I'll dance to the world's music, so to speak, to their agenda. I'll wear the world's clothes, but inside I'm serving God. My heart is where it should be. God knows my heart. What I do outside doesn't matter. But they weren't afraid. They said, we're not careful to answer in this manner, or we're not afraid to answer you. If, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. Whether we live or die, we're in the hands of God. You see, that is where we as a non-resistant person are. We are in the hands of God. We have already given up our life to God. We have died to self, and so whether we live or die, we're God's. It's a life of the cross, and the cross, it means death, but it also, it's, it's something more. The cross is where man met God, right? The cross of Jesus Christ it is where you and I go to meet God, as I understand. That's, that's, one, that's one of the things. It's, and a cross is an intersection. It is where two rows meet, so to speak. It is where I meet God. And so when I am willing to, to carry the cross and to give up my life, now the cross is where my fellow man, my neighbor, my enemy meets God. Not, not because of me or anything like that. It's because of what Jesus is able to do in our lives. The community as a whole of, of believers living the life of the cross, it is where our fellow man that does not know God meets God. They come face to face with him. Look at what happened here in these in this in the lives of these young three young men. They stood for what they knew was right. Everyone else bowed down to those to that goal, to that image. And I suspect there were there may have been other Jews there. I don't know. I, it didn't matter to those three men. They were going to stand. I'm not, I don't know where Daniel was. I'm, I know Daniel didn't bow down, but here were these three men. Everyone else bowed down to the world's agenda. They did not. They didn't have time to go ask dad or grandpa or the priest because dad and grandpa and the priest weren't around. They had already purposed in their heart to obey God. And you see, the non-resistance must be a privately held belief. We must have it in our heart. It's, it's the living out of the cross. Death to self. It's not going to be. It's not going to be pleasant at times. There are rewards. They were willing to accept the accusations given them. Were they? Were, was it true that they were disrespected the king? No, it wasn't true. But there was a king that they that they respected more than than, than Nebuchadnezzar. And look what happened. Verse. 25 
Verse 24, he says to his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. I, I Have you ever wondered, how in the world did he know it was the Son of God? Or like, look like... What made him think it was the Son of God? I don't know. Do you know? I, I don't know what it was. Somehow he knew it looked like the Son of God. You see, their willingness to stand for truth brought them into the pre very presence of God. Are you willing to do that? Are we willing to do that? And we say, well, sure, we, we love our enemies, but how about if it's someone in our own communities, someone that should know better? How about then? They were respectful, but non-negotiable. Are our beliefs personal or are they our parents' beliefs? Romans chapter 8. And for non-resistant Christian, someone has called this the atomic bomb of the non-resistant Christian. It is the verses that we claim. And nothing, not even an atomic bomb, can separate us from these verses and from God. Romans 8.35 Who should separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. You see that? For God's sake, we are willing to die all day long. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In whatever situation we find ourselves in, these verses are ours. If we have given ourselves up to dying, are we, are you, am I dead to self? Am I willing to die? to self so that others can meet God. There's nothing that can separate me from Jesus Christ and from his love. Being dead to sin, we, we think it's 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 a one-time thing, but it's a process. It's it's a process of dying to sin and so is carrying the cross. God continues to work in us and to and to change us into his image. Are we willing to be that that place where we can bring others in to, to meet God. You know, as you think of dying for, for God, I think of people that will strap on a bomb, walk into a crowded place and blow themselves up. What makes a person do that? Ever wondered? What drives a person to do that? Is it love for God? The God they're serving? Is it fear? 
What is a better motivator, fear or love? I think those are two, two, some of the greatest, two greatest forces of, of motivation, fear and love, right? If, if you think about it, fear will make us do a lot of things, but love, isn't love a greater motivating force than fear? Because love casts out fear. And so the thing that should motivate us to live for God is love. It's, you know, being a witness or a martyr, it's a lot more than giving up our life for, for Jesus Christ. Um, I say our life, our physical life. As far as I know, Christians are the only ones that profess to have God living inside them. I don't know of any other religion that professes to have their God living inside them and giving them, and, and giving them power to live. How much different am I from the person, from my neighbor who doesn't believe in God? Is the power and the force of God in my life evident? Someone has said that we sin because we want to. We have the power of God, we have Jesus Christ, we have the aid of the Holy Spirit, and we have God's angels all on our side, and why can't we stop sinning? Sobering, you know, John the Baptist, he told his, he told people to quit doing violence, he told the soldiers to do, stop doing violence, and Jesus said to love our neighbor as yourself. Why should we not do violence to someone? Jesus said, he said in uh, Matthew chapter 5, That we are to overcome evil with good. You have heard that have been said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, they resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee in their right cheek, turn to him the other also. That's where we get the word non-resistance, that you resist not evil. Why should we not do violence to anyone? Have you ever wondered, why does it matter? If we're all a product of time... And matter and chance, why does it matter? What we do to someone else. Right? If, it, if, if you and I being here is, is the result of billions and billions of years of time, plus a little bit of, well, one place I read, they, their theory was that we come from pond scum. So if you have billions of years, a little bit of pond scum and chance, you get people, according to that theory. So why does it matter what I do to you or you do to me or we do to each other? I'd like for you to think about that. And Lord willing, tomorrow evening I'd like to start with that. What determines the person's value? 
Why does it matter what we do to each other? That's all I have for this evening. Um, are there any are there any questions or, or comments? I'd like to open it up a few minutes. Okay, very good. How do we how do we take a corporate belief, what everyone believes, or what the majority believe, and make it our own privately held belief? How do we how do we move from corporate to private? You mean are you talking about personally or in the lives of our children or disciples or Yes. I agree. Mm-hmm. Okay. It is it is very easy to to say this is this is what we believe this is our statement of faith this is our practice but how do we get it from from that piece of paper into the hearts of ourselves and our children and our our young people into in everybody's life any any comments on that personal conviction yes I I hundred percent agree with that and. I would I would love to hear some uh, some thoughts on on that personal conviction. Um, it's something that I've been. I'm sorry. The early church's method was preaching. Yes, yes. Um, they the early church preached it, but they also lived it out. And I remember uh, something that I can't remember who was who. I think one of our ministers at home, I believe it was, related something that happened at or that was shared at the Beachy Ministers meetings years ago. The topic that was given the the minister was his topic was something like this: how to pass on our convictions to our children. And what he said. He said, we are. In reality, we are passing on our convictions to our children. So, <laughs> I guess that, I believe they say it's uh, it's your children's children where your teachings show up. So, I, uh, I, but I think that is, that is a concern of, of every Christian parent is how, and and leader and and member of a, a community of faith. How do we pass on these these things? How are we going to get the, an, another generation to accept them as their own? That's, that's sobering because. I think in reality it is the living out. That's where that's where it's and if you read Deuteronomy you find out that it's the parents that are supposed to pass these things along, not your preachers. <laughs> Lord bless you.